11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no man will be justified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So today is Palm Sunday. It's one of those Sundays we look forward to every year. If you've grown up in the church for any, uh, or been in the church for any length of time, uh, it can be one of those exciting times. We heard this morning the reading of the triumphal entry. Oftentimes we don't have them this morning, but you'll see palm fronds. You might have the children of the church singing Hosanna to God in the highest. It's something we look forward to, and it's a, it's a good thing. But I think we're left with the question as we consider Palm Sunday or any other Sunday. What is it all about? What is it all about? What does the triumphal entry mean for us today? Is it just another day that we celebrate for the sake of it because we are in love, whether we realize it or not, with our traditions? We love our traditions, the things that we do over and over again. Is it something that is merely rote or habitual? What we have to remember as we come to days like Palm Sunday and Easter and Christmas is that they're meant to point us to something else. It's meant to point us to the king who has come. And not only this, but to the king and all that the king had to do that he needed to do for us and we might be tempted to misunderstand we might be tempted to misunderstand certainly there were those on that day who misunderstood the king doesn't come as we expect he doesn't come to conquer all our enemies to vanquish all of those who do not think the way that we think he comes in such a way to bring us life. This comes through his perfect obedience, through his sacrificial death, through the empty tomb. That is the heart and the essence of the gospel. When we think about Christ's coming, the triumphal entry was not just about the laying of palms. It was not just about the singing of Hosanna. It was about the king who comes in such a different way to bring us life, he was going with focused determination now to the cross. That's what 
is in mind when we talk about the triumphal entry. It's the gospel. As we come to our text today, it's that very gospel that Paul is so anxious to protect. That we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ who has been made king, whose kingdom has now come. And interestingly here, you go, well, this isn't a very Palm Sunday kind of text. And and it isn't, but it is. Because as we come here, there's a battle going on. We see a battle between Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and Paul. It's a kind of a completely unexpected battle. These two are friends. They've been friends for some time. We've already seen about how Peter and Paul were in Jerusalem, and Peter gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. You can imagine, even today, you know two best friends, and they've been best friends forever, and all of a sudden there's a falling out, and they're at each other, and you say, I can't believe those two. They've always been together. They're so good friends, and now they're fighting one another. There are those have come, we've talked about them, the Judaizers. And they're coming in and they're trying to erode the faith. In essence, as we've been going through chapter 1 and 2, we can say uh, Paul has been doing this. He comes and he argues that he's been an apostle long before he met the other apostles. He shows, that we saw last week, that they affirmed his apostleship. And now Paul is going to say, I even, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, have the authority to rebuke other apostles. And this is what he's going to do. He comes to Peter and says, you're wrong. And he does it very loudly and very publicly. So as we come to our text today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see division from within, dissension from without, and a truth that is unchanging. Division from within, dissension from without, and a truth that is unchanging. Let's begin by looking at division from within. The problem here in the church is one of fellowship. It was about eating. Eating, back then, was a very cultural experience. And whether we realize it or not, that's really not less true today. Who you invite to your table says something about you. Who are you willing to bring and sit down with you for a meal? This is a lot about us. This incident at Antioch was ugly. And there's so much of it that we don't even fully grasp. It was full of racial undertones or overtones, excuse me. They were saying, basically, you're not okay to eat with us. We are going to separate ourselves from you. You're Gentiles, we're Jews, and we're going to keep us separate. And the Old Testament food laws uh, were what were at stake here. They were important to the Jews. Mealtimes were sacred. Think about Jesus in his ministry. How many times did the Pharisees get bent out of shape just because Jesus chose to eat with? You're eating with tax collectors. You're eating with prostitutes. They didn't like it. And eating table fellowship in Antioch became a crucial problem. And they had to wrestle with us this idea. The apostles had already addressed the Gentiles in Jerusalem. They said, look, 
Uh, Paul, you go to the, you're an apostle to the Gentiles. That's your mission. Uh, they said, they said, uh, remember Titus, the test case, you don't have to be circumcised. They've already established that the Gentiles no longer have to keep the Old Testament law to be saved. But the question is now, how do the Jews relate to the Gentiles? How are they to get along in the church? How are they to get along in the context of life and worship? They have not yet settled the practical question of how this was going to happen. Uh, J. Gresham Machen says it this way. The Gentile Christians, it will, will be remembered, had been released from the obligation of being circumcised and of undertaking to keep the Mosaic law. The Jewish Christians, on the other hand, had not been required to give up their ancestral mode of life. But how could the Jewish Christians continue to live under the law if they had companionship with Gentiles in a way which would render the strict observance of the law impossible? There was this dichotomy in the church. We are living one way, and it's fine for us to do so. You are living another way, and it's fine for you to do so, and they're not compatible. What are we going to do? And God, in fact, had already provided an answer for this. Acts 10. We remember Peter, the same Peter we're talking about here, uh, falls asleep. And you remember the, the tablecloth, right? The big sheet that was lowered by four uh, corners from heaven. And on that was all these unclean animals, right? And, and in the vision, God says to Peter, rise and eat. And what does Peter say? I can't. These are unclean animals. I can't do this. And what God in response says, don't what I call unclean, what I have called clean. Paul learned a valuable lesson, or excuse me, Peter learned a valuable lesson here. It was not just about evangelism, it was about fellowship as well. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. But again, there were those who came in the church and they were trying to add they weren't comfortable with the way things were going, so they tried to add their Judaism to, the, to Christianity. And there are always going to be those in the church who try to add to the gospel. What's the problem with this? Now, you may say, well, that's uh, quite an obvious question. You can't add to the gospel, but sometimes it's not so obvious. When we consider the triumphal entry, when we consider what Christ came to do, that he boldly came to the cross... That he boldly went to the cross and died. He suffered the wrath of God for his people. And we come in and we add back a yoke that Jesus has removed. That is a very big thing. It erodes at our faith. And we always have to be on the lookout. Now, for us today, it tends to be a bit different, doesn't it? We don't come into the church and say, this is a baconless church. I might lose all of you if I said that. We are going to not eat any pork product, which is, would be very much a tragedy, which is kind of ironic in a way, because what is the Easter meal? Ham, <laughs> right? I wonder if we, we sometimes fail to see the humor in that a little bit. And yet, also the wonderful, beautiful truth that Christ has made that clean in the cross. But we come in with different things today, don't we? 
this is how I like to worship. I think it should be the way that everyone should have to worship. This is what I think is okay and what's not okay. And as we come into the church, we, we often encounter a struggle like Peter and Paul are having. And for many reasons, we fail to engage in that. Maybe we don't like to be confrontational. Maybe we don't like to hurt people's feelings. We forget that our goal at the end of the day is not to please people. But on the other hand, we sometimes stand up for the wrong thing. We make the color of the wall the primary thing in the church. And what happens? We cannot be a church of Jesus Christ if we have yellow walls. They must be white walls, right? And we fight over it. We fight over preference, the color of the carpet, the color of the walls. It is only right to be confrontational in this way when the gospel is at stake. And when the gospel is at stake, we must be confrontational. But like these Judaizers here, we tend to add that which is not essential. And they come. They come to the church in Antioch and they say, look, it says these who came from James. And now this is, this is James who was with Peter and Paul in Jerusalem. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And these are, for lack of a better word, James groupies. They are those who come from James, but they don't come from James. Acts 15, 24. Since we have heard that some, pe some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. They are those people who come and say, well, I'm from James, but really don't have James's authority. And they come and they take note of Peter. They come in and they say, ooh, Peter, what are you doing here? And you can imagine. Imagine those people, let's just say you have respect for or you want approval from. And they come in and they say, why are you? Most of us here were children at one point, right? Some of us has been longer than others. Some of us are still children right now. And one of the things I think we grow up, and we, I think it's true later in life, but I think we can see it most evidently when we're children, is we want to be accepted, don't we? We want people to like us. And so people come in and say, if you do, this is what you need to do to fit in and be cool. And Peter's feeling that pressure. Look, Peter, Peter, Peter. No, no, we have to keep our food laws. And you're an outcast from us if you don't do that. How are you eating now with these uncircumcised heathens? They turn the screws of political pressures. It would be today for us as adults if maybe you're in the upper middle class and uh, you have someone who's in the lower class to your house and your neighbor comes over and says, why are you eating with these kind of people? This is not what we do in our moving up circles. We don't condescend to these sort of folks. They're different from us. And you know what Peter did? Peter, who was there at the triumphal entry, 
Peter who was there when his Lord was crucified, Peter who had seen the risen Lord with his own eyes, Peter who had already affirmed, no, it's not by works of the law, but through Christ alone. He said, oh, oh, okay. Okay. And he stopped eating with the Gentiles. He stopped sharing table fellowship with them. He stopped inviting them to their table. There's even some evidence that he stopped observing the Lord's Supper with them. For Peter, it was not a matter of principle, but cowardice. And let me stop for a second because you're like, well, you're being real harsh on Peter. But I love Peter. I love Peter because Peter is my go-to when I'm feeling bad about myself. I get to go, well, even Peter. I love Peter because he's us. And it shows us that even great Christians can fall into sin, sometimes even more than once. But he also is a, a cautionary tale of what we are not to do. Peter's poor choice teaches us to stick up for the gospel. What he did is he pulled back from his brothers and sisters. And in essence, what did he do? He showed them the very opposite of what Paul said. He showed them that he was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed of the gospel because he would not engage with them in table fellowship. He didn't stand his ground. That all Christians, all, are saved by grace alone in Christ alone, and that is it. For Peter, it was a matter of, I don't want to rock the boat. He hated the idea of confrontation. But Paul was not one of those people. Paul is not timid at all. Paul comes and opposes Peter right to his face. And he did it in the open. This is one of those times where he didn't say, hey, Peter, can I talk to you? He didn't pull him aside and say, hey, look, now. No, he did it in the open. And I think it's appropriate that he did it in open. Because Peter was openly doing this before all to see. The gospel was at stake and Paul needed Peter to understand this and everyone who saw Peter doing it to understand it. Peter was not only wrong, but he was setting a bad example. He was a leader. He was influential. And it affected even Barnabas. You know who Barnabas is, right? Barnabas, first missionary journeyer with Paul, who went to the Gentiles throughout Asia Minor. And you're thinking, even Barnabas fell into this. You can imagine Paul, who spent all this time with Barnabas. It's like, it's almost the et tu Barnabas moment, right? Even you, Barnabas, even you have done this. But interestingly, they're not really committed to their action. They know that there's hypocrisy in this. John Stott says this, Peter knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus was the only condition on which God will have fellowship with sinners. But he added circumcision as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have fellowship with them, thus contradicting the gospel. At the end of the day, his action was not consistent with his theology. He had gone back on what they had decided in Jerusalem. And Paul accuses them. He calls them out. He says, how can you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew? How can you force 
the Gentiles to live like Jews. He calls them out. Forcing the Gentiles to adopt Jewish customs and practices was wrong. And there's a warning here, I think, for the contemporary church as well. Our behavior, the things that we do, can undermine our faith. We confess with our mouth, yet we deny with our actions. This is what Peter was doing. Confessing Christ with his mouth and denying it with his actions. What do our actions say? Do the people we invite to fellowship with us to our home promote the unity of the whole of the church? Or do we have conditions? I think it's easy for us to fall into the trap of Peter. I think there's many ways in which the church today is paying for this exact same thing. For many years, we say in the church, if you're a man and you cheat, that's okay. If you're a woman and you cheat on your husband, that's worse. And we have practiced, oh, well, it's just... You're a young kid and you're a, a, a boy and you happen to have uh, sex before marriage. Oh, slugger. Ah, you're a girl. It's different. And we're paying for that in the church today because we have depicted a gospel that is not consistent. This is true across the board in societal issues and other things. We cannot set up a barrier and a boundary that people have to get past and have different standards. We are all saved in the same way. We all come to Christ as beggars. We all come to the king who comes triumphantly on the same footing. And we cannot add or subtract anything from this gospel. We need nothing but Jesus. He has done all that we need to be saved. This is the unchanging truth that Paul is trying to show us. Because Paul, at the end of the day, was not merely concerned with cliques forming in the church. And I don't matter what church you go to, there's always the assumption or the reality that there are cliques forming in the church. And it really even wasn't primarily about the exclusion of others, although certainly he's talking about that. It's not good to exclude others. But what Paul sees here is that there was a battle for the gospel of free grace. It wasn't merely a battle for who you're going to eat with. If that's what you come in and you see this with, that's not what it's about. At the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about everything he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Because the cross proclaims a different sort of gospel than what we see here in Peter. Jesus had done everything. And we must then have fellowship with everyone 
who has fellowship with Christ. We must have fellowship with everyone who has had fellowship with, who has fellowship with Christ. If we fail in this, our actions deny the gospel. How many times have you heard someone in the church say, I just don't get along with them. So I just let them be. They can be over there. I'm going to be over here. I just don't get along with them. I don't like them. You ever heard someone say that? Have you ever said that? Maybe on Wednesday nights we go, well, they can sit at their table. I'll sit at my table. Paul comes and says, no. You come into the church and you come and you have fellowship with all. They were only concerned with outward appearance. And this runs deep in our human nature. We are continually worried about outward appearance. It's something that I think we all will struggle with. And Paul comes to Peter and he stands up for a truth that is unchanging. He comes and says what they have in, in, in common. Look, we were both Gentile. We were both not born Gentile sinners. We were born Jews, but we received the gospel the same way. We received this good news the same way. And he says it's about how we're justified. And we're going to start talking about this week. We're really going to talk about it next week. It says it's just about how you're justified. How are you made right before God? Justification, being justified, being made just is a legal term. It means to be proclaimed innocent. It means to be proclaimed innocent before the bar of God's justice, to be declared righteous. And he says, this cannot be gained through keeping the law. You cannot be made right by keeping the law. If you fail any part of the law, you fail all of it. And if you think you can keep it, you're di di just lying to yourself and you've fallen into legalism. The problem, however, is not found in the law. It's found in our own lawlessness. But thankfully, there's another way. He says, uh, you are justified not by works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. What is faith in Jesus Christ? This is total surrender to him. This is the only thing that makes us acceptable to God. It's corporate and personal. Both. We renounce our own effort. We trust in God saving us through faith in Christ. This is true for Paul. This is true for Peter. And it's true for you. Many would come and say to you, you must rest and rely on your own human effort. And this is simply not the case. The Bible says this is not the way. Being a Christian means admitting you cannot be saved by the good things you do. You cannot be saved by the car you drive. You cannot be saved by the house you own. You cannot be paid by, or saved by how much money you get paid each year. You cannot be saved by the clothes you wear. You cannot be saved by the ways you elevate yourself over others. There is no way to be made right except through faith in Christ. And this is true for the beggar on the street. And this is true for the kings of the world. It is true the same for all. Anyone who believes this is a Christian, 
And anyone who doesn't is not. Anyone who is a Christian has to live like one. And this includes the fellowship we have with one another. And it's not a belittling, it's not a condescending sort of fellowship. It is true, biblical fellowship in which we engage one another in the love that we have been given. From the very beginning of the church, the church was feuding with itself. From the very beginning, it was trying to define who and what it was going to be. And we talk today, we're like, why do we have Baptists and we have Presbyterians? And, and, and even then, we can go to Corinthians and we can say, well, there's those who follow Paul and there's those who follow Apollos and there's oh, those who follow so-and-so and so-and-so. And there's like these many denominations throughout the church. But what we have to remember is that it's all about the same thing. It's all about Christ who comes humbly on a donkey coming to the cross so that we might be saved. It's about our being justified, not through anything that we do, but by being justified by Christ alone, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. This is the common element that binds all of us. No matter what else we can say about ourselves, if we have Christ, then it, it, is, it is in this that we are unified. And it is this that we must protect and defend before all else. If someone comes through those doors and it doesn't matter what race, what gender, or anything else, they say, I claim Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the word of God. It doesn't ma matter if they're a beggar on the street or the queen of England. They come the same way. And if those come into the church or from without the church and they come to tell us anything different then we cannot be timid we cannot be lazy we must stand for truth it's all about jesus what he has done and nothing else at the end of the day my palm sunday message to you is this the gospel is all you need the gospel is all you need. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who came as fully God and fully man, who came humbly and meekly, who perfectly obeyed that law, that law that we try to justify ourselves with all the time, he obeyed it perfectly. And then he willingly and obediently went to the cross. And upon the cross, your sins were applied to Christ. And all the wrath that came with that was poured upon him. And he died. And he rose again from the dead. That we might have life. And now his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is imputed, is put upon. We wear it like a garment. His righteousness is our righteousness. So when, Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus. 
If you know Christ, that's true for you. And if you don't know it, oh, I pray that you do. I pray that you hear my words and turn to him. We need this king who comes triumphantly on a donkey. We need this king who through death reigns and has life. There is no hope apart from this. There is no hope apart from the cross and the empty tomb. This is what Peter was missing. What he willingly gave up because of social pressure. And this is what Paul defends. Even to the point where he does not care how it makes him look. He was going to go to Peter who was with Jesus and say, you're wrong. Note here what he's doing. When I say there is no difference between the pauper and the queen of England, I mean that. Paul, killer of Christians, comes to Peter and says, you're wrong. This is not the gospel. We must stand for truth. No matter what the cost. This is what we're going to come and see here in a moment. Christ. His death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you make the gospel beautiful to us? And would we put aside all our preferences, all our presuppositions of what we think a Christian is to look like and see what Christ criteria? And would we have fellowship and love with one another? We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.